Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Welcome, listeners. It is wonderful to be with you here again today, and I feel I have a real treat for all of us today. Um, I'm welcoming Zuza Zach to the podcast, and this is actually the second time that we've gotten to hear from her. The first was about two months ago. It was um, an emergency episode all about Cook for Ukraine and an initiative that several women were pulling together to support um, Ukrainians during during this time, this war on them um, that's being waged by the Russians. So despite this being the second time that I've talked to Zuza, this is still one of the longest episodes I've released in a while. And that's because I just love listening to Zuza and I couldn't cut anything. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Zuza is a three-time cookbook author. First, she wrote Polska, which she calls a love language to her country of Poland. And that's what we really focus on in this episode. She's also released Amber and Rye, which is all about cuisine. And uh, because she is a storytelling cook and cookbook author, it's also about the history and heritage of the Baltic states. And now um, this year, she's releasing a book all about pierogi or dumplings. So as um, a storytelling cookbook author, as she calls herself, Zusa has so much insight into um, not just cooking, but she has a real gift into showing us the way that food connects us to nature, especially to home, place, heritage, and really the rhythms of the season. And maybe it's because of this connection to nature or maybe it's just because of her voice <laughs> and the way that Zuza speaks so easily. Every time I read work from Zuza or speak to her on the phone, I feel this combination of calm, but mentally stimulated all at the same time. So like I said, I feel like any time spent reading her cookbooks or speaking with her is a real gift, and I'm happy to pass those along to you right now. I, I do feel lucky, actually, that I'm getting to speak to you a second time. And I do just want to thank you again for coming on and talking about Cook for Ukraine. Um, I know it's more of a British thing, but I think for my American listeners, one, some of them did step in, I know, and contribute to that. But I think it just encouraged people here um, in the U.S. to even look for other ways. So it was just a hugely helpful, helpful thing. So thank you so much for that. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you so much, Becky. And uh, yeah, it was. It felt like a good moment to share all that. And mm -hmm. um, and I'm really happy to be to be on again. So thank you so much. Um, when we last talked, uh, you were helping by spreading the word, and you were planning some dumpling workshops. I think you were calling them pierogies for peace. That's right, pierogi for peace. So yeah. we've already had one of those. How did that go? Wonderful, actually. It was, I mean, very intense, obviously, because mm. <laughs> trying to get 15 people kind of making dumplings and um, it, it's it's a sort of very intense endeavor from, for, for, from an organizational Yes, there's a lot of um, steps. It's a long, like, it's a lot. I mean, how much prep did you have to do in advance? 
a, a lot of, I mean, I basically, yeah, I think I did prep until like 2am in the morning oh, <laughs> just to get everything to a good kind of, um, you know, level so we could all have fun doing it. But yeah. then it worked out so well and it was so lovely just to speak to everyone. The atmosphere was fantastic. We all knew exactly why we were there mm-hmm. and, um, and we felt like we were coming together and doing something um, something lovely and therapeutic and fun but also for a good cause and it's yeah. a really really good feeling actually mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as you were in the room I, I keep wondering this as I see um Alyssa and Olia also um you know who are the who are the founders for cook for Ukraine and um Olia is Ukrainian has family I mean I think her brother's fighting in Kiev her parents have been trapped in Kherson. You know, there's um, Alyssa who's Russian and has her own trauma associated with this. And I'm wondering for for you guys, as you put these events on, and they do seem so lovely and warm, is there any sense of like almost a survivor's guilt? Like, does it feel... Um, does it feel discongruous to have these feelings when you kind of know what's going on on the ground or does it feel, does it feel right and whole, like we're doing what we can? You know what I'm asking? Yes, I do know exactly what you're asking. Um, in terms of the events, I feel this, this is the right way to go because mm. this is how we can help in the West. Our money goes really far in mm. the Ukraine. So just getting the donations in and and we are doing it with the skills that we have mm-hmm. and food is a way of kind of you know moving past nation states and borders and things like that mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a really wonderful way that we have of just communing as as humans so in that way I feel like uh, it feels really good to be doing it mm-hmm. um, on, on the other hand, there is some guilt involved just on a daily basis for me. I feel yeah. like this whole episode has taken out some joy out of my life, which is mm-hmm. annoying. I don't want Putin to destroy everyone's mm. joy, you know, because mm. maybe that's what he wants. I think he's obviously a very miserable, mad mm, yes. individual. Um, but I do sort of whenever I have like a moment of joy with my with my children, I think of people in Ukraine who are, whose children are suffering and who, you know, who don't have that feeling of safety. So mm-hmm. there is an element of, of guilt, just, just in everyday life, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting how we've kind of, um, there was this moment of like shock and, and uh, nothing could ever feel right again. And then you kind of go back into things, you know, your emotions, equalize a little bit. I don't want to say you become immune to the news, but you settle into this is not going to be resolved right away. I can't live in this moment of crisis, you know? And then I know yeah. for me, I was like, I'm never going to complain again, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like this yeah. really dramatic proclamation. And then the next day I'm proclaiming over, I, I don't know, my coffee not being hot enough or um, yeah. not, not like out in public because I... <laughs> Try not to be overly obnoxious, but you know, I mean, I'm quite a complainer in my own mind in my own home. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think when I was talking to Anna a couple of weeks ago, I used this term cognitive dissonance. It's like, I just can't hold all these things in my mind and my emotions together at the same time. I just, I I can't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, 
this is the moment I think when we are trying to just live with it because we have mm. to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there's a point where you have crisis and you do what you can to help. Mm. Mm-hmm. And of course, we need to keep remembering that it's still going on. We can't just forget and just be right. like, oh, well, that's still happening. Another million people, you know. Right. So we do need to keep that in the forefront of our memory. At the same time, we need to also allow joy yeah. and our own lives to continue. I'm going yeah. on holiday in a few days. And there's a part of me thinking, oh, gosh, you know, you yeah. know, how, how dare I go I? on holiday at a time like this, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. At the same time, I am exhausted. I haven't had a holiday for three years. Mm. And I feel that I need to look after myself and live my life as well. And then mm. come back mm-hmm. with a renewed energy to be able to put that into what I need to do in order to feel like I'm contributing in the right way to what's mm. going on. Mm-hmm. So, for example, my next dumpling workshop, mm. and then I want to do an online one which I've never done before. So I have to sort of work it all out. And, yeah, you know, I I need to have the motivation and the strength to be able to do this as well. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. My husband's been happy, uh, helpful with the practical side of it. And, you know, one one of the things he did say is he said, you know, Becky, we're looking away all the time. And yes. that was a really, he, he meant, you know, <laughs> it's very true. It's a very, very, it's true. very true. We're threatened. Uh, those of us in the West are threatened by this situation. I mean, we have this cloud of nuclear warfare hanging over mm-hmm. our head and that hasn't been true for a long time. Um, yeah. So we're more threatened, which makes us maybe mm-hmm. sadly more empathetic, more sympathetic, but um, we've been looking away for a long time. So I'm also hoping that this remembers me, reminds me to look away less, you know? Um, it has but, for me, actually, mm-hmm. when I sort of, you know, see children starving in Yemen mm. and things like that, mm. I'm, I'm more sensitive to the mm-hmm. suffering of others now, I think. Yeah. And I think that's appropriate in our world because we, in some ways, I think are hypnotized by our phones, by media, to just look at the lovely things and to ignore the reality of what's going on in our world. And there's a lot of things that are going wrong and it shouldn't be that way. So we need to be in the West. We're in a privileged position. We need to be seeing what's happening and putting at least Uh our our funds, and you know, rather than spending money on things we don't need. Yeah put that money, you know, into, into something else. Yeah. Live, live with a little less so others can have a lot more because like you said, our money goes far. Exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hope and pray we can follow up on these good intentions, you know, um, whether it be not complaining (laughs) or giving, giving more, you know? Um, So I do want to tell you about a really pleasant afternoon that I had in the last month though, because, um, you know, like you said, it's kind of silly. It's like, it's not personally affecting me, but I have felt like emotionally exhausted, like almost like I just can barely get through my weeks, you know, sometimes with this cloud of gloom. And, um, two weeks ago, I just, uh, on a Friday, I have about a two hour window on a Friday afternoon, um, 
to myself. And I normally just try to cram so much podcast work into that time. But Mm -hmm. on this Friday, I was feeling that exhaustion and that sadness. And I said, you know what, just sit down and read this beautiful cookbook (laughs) by Zusa. (laughs) And honestly, it was just lovely. Like I have such a warm and calm feeling associated with that afternoon. And your cookbook was like a gift to me that day. It was so um, just sweet and simple and informative and um, interesting. And I felt connected to nature. Like nature is definitely where I feel calm. I walk every morning and you have parts just divided into seasons. And um, I, I just felt connected to this past. It was beautiful and wonderful. So Thank you for that, Zusa. That's so wonderful to hear. Thank you. It's, mm-hmm. you know, that's sort of what you dream for the book to be mm-hmm. when you're writing it. And when you have those like lovely moments when you're in the flow and you're writing it and you sort of imagine that someone's going to get that out of it eventually. So thank you. Glad, yes. So well, I did. I really did. It was kind of... Um, you know, it was like a island, island in a storm or something, you know, that <laughs> afternoon. So I, I enjoyed it. And I would love to start by talking about, um, well, maybe I didn't put this in the questions. Do you want to maybe just tell everyone a little bit about your cookbook, um, what it covers and maybe the structure that you use to write it? Maybe should you introduce it that way? Right. So we're talking about Polska, aren't we? That my oh, yes, book. yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, because of yeah. course you've written Amber and Rye as well about the Baltic states, yes. and now you're working on a third one. But yes, this was Polska. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, I I remember you mentioning that you were reading Polska. Um, so yes, that was my first uh, cookbook, and I put a lot of work into it because I was writing it while I was working full time. Wow. Um, so it was years and years of work, but only like sort of half an hour a day. Yeah. <laughs> but still a lot of kind of um, love went into it because mm. it was kind of. It shows. Um, yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so basically I've, I've got it in front of me here. Mm. Yeah. It's very sort of a uh, family or- orientated. It's uh, maybe a little bit like rose tinted glasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very rosy kind of interpretation it's it's a love letter because you know I've lived out of the country since I was eight so I think I have that kind of nostalgia of a sort of expatriate um so it starts off with um well I just write about Poland at first so it's the introduction it's sort of a little bit of history a little bit about the seasons the ingredients um and then um I go into breakfast and bread um, because bread is quite a vital part mm. of the culture. Um, and then soups, meat dishes, fish dishes. I was writing the fish dishes when I was heavily pregnant and I had such an aversion to fish. So oh. <laughs> I don't oh, remember wow. that chocolate with great fondness, to be honest. <laughs> that did not like, come oh, across. That's lovely. <laughs> if I can look at it for a while. because. Um, <laughs> Well done. Um, (laughs) And then vegetables, beans and kasham, because I really wanted to sort of highlight the non-meaty, stodgy Mm. part of this cuisine. Mm. And actually, there's a very long history of vegetarian food in Poland. I think um, 
the first vegetarian book. I don't, you know, I'm so terrible with dates, so I don't want to, um, uh, I don't want to get it wrong, but it was the beginning of the 19th century that I found the first sort of vegetarian cookbook. Wow. Um, and then uh, uh, slightly apologetic in tone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> vegetarian cookbooks. There's quite a lot of them in the 19th century and, uh, and all quite apologetic. Um, but they're there. <laughs> Full of vegetarian dishes, so there. That's so <laughs> interesting. Vegetarian food, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which was good. It's like proving a point, you know, because people do not associate vegetarian dishes with Polish cuisine. Right, so but it was there. It was there. Yeah, yeah. it was always there. Um, dumplings. I did a whole yes. uh, chapter on dumplings, which yes. I know you were quite interested in hearing more about. So we'll yes, yeah, uh, party food, which is zakonski, um, which um, is basically like the the Polish or East European meze. Yes, which is sort of you start every kind of uh, meal or feast or when you have people around or whatever with zakonski uh, or przekonski, depending on what you want to call them. Yes. And then cakes and desserts, and I finish off with cocktails just to make use of the lovely Polish vodkas. Yes, well, and I have to tell you, I took a picture of the um, say, is it how do you say it, Zazonski? Zakonski? No. Yes, that. How say it one more time for me? So Zakonski. Zakonski. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I had um, like I don't know, a month or six weeks ago, I had on um, uh, Anisa who was from Odessa yeah. and Ukraine. And she was trying to explain this concept to me of like these kind of heavy appetizers that you mm-hmm. eat with your uh, good vodka. And yeah. I reading your book, I was like, oh, I, I get it now. I get it. And I mm-hmm. sent her a picture of it and um, of your words. And she's like, now you get it, don't you? <laughs> so I yeah. really... Yeah, I did enjoy that part. And I want to tell um, listeners that in each of these, as you talk about the recipes, you really um, do tie it all back to your own family, um, your homeland, a little bit of history. And I think for me, I was especially taken with all of the um, all of the memories of your grandmothers. So can you tell me a little bit about them? Absolutely. And um, yeah, I can just I'm just looking at the two pictures of them in the from the front of the book, Mm. because I've got some old pictures in there. And sadly, we don't have that many pictures of my grandmothers, Mm. which I found once they were already gone that, oh, gosh, we didn't take enough pictures. Mm. But um, I guess in the olden days, people didn't take pictures as much. Mm -hmm. So um, my one of my grandmas is standing in her tiny little kitchen and she was actually a cook by profession. Oh, really? Yes. She, okay. So, yeah, she cooked actually. And then um, various uh, sort of uh, canteens and um, places. But she also co- cooked at Bliklego, which used to be sort of the best donut uh, cafe in Warsaw. So really? Yeah. Okay. I must have well. missed that part. I knew one was a much better cook. Than the yes, other. she was a really good cook. She also had four children with a massive oh. extended family. So all the kind of family gatherings mm-hmm. happened in her little flat on the ninth floor wow. of this communist block. And mm. yeah, and she made beautiful cakes. And she's sort of the only person I've ever heard of, of making these, you know, intricate cakes, but doing everything by eye, because I don't think baking should be done by eye, but she still did. She somehow managed to pull it off. Really? So not only did she not weigh her ingredients, which is the gold standard, she didn't even measure? 
no she did everything but yeah everything by eye a little bit oh of this, a little my bit of yeah and I've never heard of that with baking incredible cakes yeah that's in, that is amazing yeah so wedding cakes you know those oh. proper intricate with the little marzipan the flowers and all these sort of decorations she made amazing. them for people you know every time any neighbor was having some kind of you know they would go to her and yes um, you know, yeah she would make yeah and you said she never charged uh, no not as far as I know I mean I think maybe you know they'd probably give her presents or something or you know something in re- you know what the, yeah you know, she refused to take money because Poles in general have a problem with money you know I have to ask my Polish builders like three times to give me an invoice so people isn't that interesting want to talk about money it's like almost like an exchange culture they want to like interesting interesting yeah. which does speak to the, just this very strong value of community yeah I mean I think I'm sure it's a little bit less now you know mm. but um yeah it's definitely still it's still sort of there yeah. um and then my other grand so babcia, that was babcia Juta, and my babcia halinka that was my dad's mum. Mm. Uh, she came from lithuania so okay. uh the second book is a little bit more yes. about her kind of um area okay. and she studied law so she was very um educated mm. she spoke you know um various languages including lithuanian french um russian a bit of russian you know so wow. and um and she was um she was an amazing character very um very strong-willed mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and she knew how to get sort of you know her points across <laughs> put it that way <laughs> now is this the one that she would beat her legs with nettles to, and you oh, put yes, it in quotes yes. to improve circulation. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. What so is the this? Park. Yeah. The Park is, um, Wajenki is actually called bathrooms. It was the bathrooms of some king, you know, that kind okay. of, oh, okay. like a relaxed kind of, uh, yeah, a spa. A <laughs> it, it was, um, there was a little castle there. So I think, um, you know, it was kind of like a leisure kind of gardens and you have shop and concerts there. Okay. Um, and we would go, we would always go to the Wajenki Park in Warsaw. And, um, and there was sort of, I remember a ditch by the side of the path and she would always climb into this ditch and grab the nettles and start beating her legs with them because uh, this was to improve her circulation. So once I did that as well. And um, and the whole walk, I was struggling not to cry. Because it was so (laughs) painful. It was very painful, but it just, um, it's a completely different mentality, I think, to children these days. My daughter sort of, you know, cries over everything. And I sort of struggle with that a little bit sometimes. Yeah. Because remember her age, I would, you know, it would be a point of honor to yeah. not cry. Right. <laughs> right, right. This is amazing. This is yeah. amazing. Yeah. So you talk um, a lot about about your family. And I remember the last time when you were on, you said that... Um, your childhood was shaped by this amazingly close and secure family structure, which that comes yeah. out um, very clearly how close you were to your grandparents and your parents. And then you said that um, it was also shaped though, because all of that happened against the cloud or the backdrop of it communism. So, um, so first of all, a practical question. Mm-hmm. I was shocked to read in your book that Poland was not part of the Soviet Union? Yes, that's right, actually. Um, it was a sort of satellite state, I think they called them. So, so what um, does that mean? I guess I've heard that term and I always just thought it meant 
you know, you were subsumed by it. Yes. I mean, they were in a strong alliance with the Soviet Union. Okay. Um, but actually, yeah, we did it to ourselves. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, was that by choice? Well, the communist party, obviously. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, there were communists in Poland. So I guess there was that kind of a schism. I see. Between the communist people and the non-communist people and then the people that you know were prepared to kind of go along with it in order to you know just advance themselves or mm. you know have the kind of life they wanted and the people that were sort of standing up against it so mm. um yeah so we weren't run by Moscow and actually I think there were times in history when actually Poland I think my dad was saying there was a moment when they actually even went against what Moscow was doing I think when it was in terms of um, I think it was um in the context of Hungary, I think there was something going on in Hungary. So, I mean, I, I won't go into that because I don't really know what I'm talking about, mm. but I know that um, our communist government was separate from um, from the USSR. I guess the, the blessing of that in the long run is that we didn't have a problem with our language was our language. I see. So, yes. This is what differentiated you from, for instance, Ukraine, where their culture was kind of systematically destroyed. Yes. Exactly. So, um, I mean, I think in some ways the communists took folkloric culture and kind of just made it to symbolize what it didn't symbolize. They perverted it in a way, you know, like which they show in um, in in Cold War. I don't know if you've seen that film. No, I haven't. Oh yeah, it's worth it's worth seeing because it's it really it's very um, accurate in terms of what mm. that atmosphere was like and what was happening mm. to the culture. So you know, communism was taking everything from the people and making it like this is our you know our mm-hmm. thing. You know, folk songs were about you know uh, about communism when folk mm. songs were never about communism. Mm. Obviously, they weren't political. It was about life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but the yes, traveling around the Baltic states, um, I sort of felt that um, that difference that actually, you know, um, the language in some places mm-hmm. just wasn't, you know, was wasn't allowed or it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, allowed to um, flourish and that kind yeah. of thing, or it was frowned upon, or it, it, you know, various different approaches mm. approaches from different. Um, governments, different moments in time, but um, but in Poland, obviously, uh, we learned Russian in school, but mm-hmm. that wasn't the first language ever. This is really interesting to me. Okay, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, that 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 that's so. <laughs> I was just wrong. I was just flat out wrong about that. I was shocked when I read that in your book. Um, and it is helpful to know that there was a little bit of a. Um, a continuation of your culture, a protection of it, um, because that, you know, you weren't part of the USSR. But at the same time, you do talk about this cloud of communism that is something that everyone in those states experienced. So what does that mean? What did that feel like? Was that part of like your everyday consciousness as a child? Um, yes, I think I think it permeated everything. I mean, wow. especially this kind of... Um, <clears throat> from you know being told from a very young age that you can't repeat anything that any conversations that we have in the house cannot be repeated wow you can't really trust anyone wow. and that was very very like um ingrained into mm. 
into me. You know, if you make a mistake, you know, people will come in the night and could come in the night mm-hmm. and take one of us away. Mm. And it's that it, there are enemies everywhere, kind of mm-hmm. thing. And mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there was a sort of um, a wonderful sense of community, but in the end, you also a sense of not really being able to trust anyone as well. Mm-hmm. Because who knows that, you know, someone might um, have something against you and then repeat something or, yeah. you know, yeah. So was there were other the, yeah. situations. Yeah. Yeah. Was there also a sense of, you know, in the US, we talk a lot about how divided we are as a nation right now. And I'm thinking if there were, um, if there, it, it sounds like it was pretty recent to your childhood and, also maybe pretty contentious this idea of like communism coming in but people not agreeing with it was there a divided poland at that time because of that oh i I think so absolutely Mm. of course there were people that you know and and even within communism it was divided because Mm. there were communists that were also good people we must not forget yeah Mm. you know Mm -hmm. um you know Gorbachev was a was a communist mm. um we had an uncle in my family and they were like yes he's a communist but he's one of those communists that actually actually believes it in it for, for the right reasons mm. not for their own self mm-hmm. uh, progression and not one of you know but there was a lot of opportunistic people mm-hmm. that were kind of under that bracket in fact probably majority mm-hmm. <laughs> were people who were just opportunists um that you know that made other people's life very hard. So there, there was a lot of division. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, you know, when solidarity came in, I think a lot of people got behind that movement, even though they didn't believe in everything, you know. I mean, mm. a lot of people that were behind solidarity weren't, you know, uh, for the church, for example, because the solidarity and the church were very kind of close together. And Interesting. there is a very strong kind of obviously Catholicism really flourished after communism because, you know, it was subdued, but then a lot of people weren't of that kind of, you know, um, Mm. persuasion, you know, like they weren't, they were quite secular. My parents were always quite secular. Mm. Um, I mean, actually my mum had to get divorced to be with my dad. So they were actually excommunicated from the church anyway. Wow. Wow. yeah. Yeah. People got on board because this common enemy of communism was bigger. So they got mm-hmm. on board and they kind of put some things to the side for a minute um, to join yes. that movement. Yeah. Uh, yes. So there were bigger things that were more important. So mm-hmm. that, you know, bigger forces that, you know, we need people needed to unify in order to, uh, yeah, to just have democracy, just to be able to choose, you know, yeah. I mean, do we choose the right governments? Not always, no. But you know that freedom of choice is mm. it's just it's everything vital to humanity, isn't it? Yes. Know? Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It really is because that's the only way there's accountability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even if you make the wrong choice, then you know the people that are installed under the wrong choice are still accountable because you can always make a different choice the next time. Yes, yeah. unless of course the people that are chosen right. <laughs> change everything, so they don't have a choice anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, happening. yes. Yeah. Right. So, how did communism? Um, back to the idea of a cookbook. How did communism mm-hmm. affect the food situation? You talked quite a bit about this. Um, I think for me, it was really significant. 
I mean, Christmas is a time of almost, honestly, it's almost a little bit disgusting um, how Mm -hmm. lavish and over the top and spare no expense and, you know, everybody gains five pounds and it's, it's gone overboard in my personal opinion um, here. And you talked about most of the preparation for Christmas was not in making the food. It was simply in gathering it. Yes, I think there's, um, I would hope there's still that magic of Christmas. We still feel that magic of Mm. a Polish Christmas. Mm. Um, It is still over the top. You know, we don't need 13 dishes on the table, (laughs) 13 meat-free dishes um, Mm. that we eat for days to come. But but it's definitely not about the presents really that much. Um, and especially it wasn't, you know, my childhood. I mean, there were presents, but it just wasn't uh, this kind of uh, massive, you know, I mean, where do, would we get presents from anyway? You know, some, you know, people would get, give what they could and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But it was more about uh, getting together as a family and the preparations. Mm-hmm. We'd also have to source the food weeks mm-hmm. before, um, you know, traditionally uh, the, po- the carp, the poles would have a carp in the yeah. bath. Yes. You know, so no one could take a, ba- a bath before Christmas until the yes. bath yes. was killed. So, yes, I first heard about this from a guest um, from the Czech Republic, and I was okay, shocked yeah. when I played it for my kids. <laughs> we were all shocked. Recently, I think there was an advert on TV just a few years ago, and it's just, um, and no one, if you're not Polish, you wouldn't understand it. It was just a carp in a bath, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if you're Polish or Czech, it seems like it everything oh because the way for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Now tell me about this, how far in advance you had to start to gather food and that people from you know the whole extended family would bring together ingredients because it was it was so hard to find them. Yeah, I mean, at least a week before, but sometimes mm. even earlier, kind of depending on, you know, if someone had something or knew someone that had something, you know, it was all about these networks mm. uh, and word of mouth. And you would have to kind of, everyone would be sourcing things from their own, you know, through their own contacts and capabilities. And somehow it would all come together as if by magic. And that was kind of, you know, the hard work involved, I think, was part of the, you know, the magic. It felt like a success, a celebration every time. Right. See, isn't that so healthy that the magic was that everyone came together and they, you know, it was a feast, but um, the magic wasn't that somehow some mom, some tired, haggard mom, like pulled off 14 class parties and five mm. plays with, you know, over the top cookies for everyone. And <laughs> I might be on a little bit of a soapbox here, but <laughs> it seems like such a healthy and beautiful thing. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. A couple more questions about this food and communism. Um, you kept referring to these milk bars. I don't know what that is. Oh, yes. A milk bar. So in communist times, it was a state-sponsored kind of cafe. Mm. Um, and the food, you know, it wasn't really very good quality. You know, there is a sort of joke that, you know, now in some of them, you might find a fly and, you know, in your soup or something. <laughs> but there wow. were some good ones as well, you see. So it okay. kind of depends. You have to know which milk bar to go to. And if you end up in a good one, then you get, you know, 
reason like you know pretty good food or okay. like hardly anything at all but now there's almost like a revival of milk bars so you can still go to a milk bar in Poland and get that mm. sort of atmosphere you feel like you're in communist times but um mm. but the food has to be good now really I mean mm. well of a certain level anyway because otherwise no one would go so right there's uh, choices and, and they're still very cheap yeah and they're still yeah. very cheap Okay. 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 Well, tell me, how did your parents, why did they decide to leave? It was interesting. You said to me the last time they were kind of used to that, um, that kind of sense of like, there's always a little bit of a threat, um, all of that, but they decided to leave for you guys. Um, so when did they decide to leave? Do you, do you remember if you had a say in this? Um, were you happy about it? Were you excited? Uh, tell me about that, that whole transition for you. And did you guys go straight to the UK? Yes, we did go straight to the UK. Um, we may have stopped off in Holland because my auntie lived in Holland. So we were always stopping off there. Um, but um, I still remember the ferry to the UK and I spent the whole time in the shop surrounded by packaging. I think it was sort of like something like seven hours on a ferry. Wow. And I was just looking at the packaging in the shop. So it was there was definitely an excitement there because it mm. felt like I was going from a black and white film to Technicolor. Wow. You know, in terms of um, just shops and things, you know. Wow. Um, even though we always had everything we needed on our table and it, the feasts mm-hmm. and gatherings were very colourful, but, you know, obviously the packaging just, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, if there was stuff in the shops, then... I mean, I love Polish packaging, so don't get me wrong, because yeah. um, now I, I can see how the design was really good in those days. Yeah. Um, but it was just the sheer kind of amount of 80s, you know, colour, packaging, sweet yeah. things. Isn't that um, interesting? Yeah. So that was very exciting for me. But I thought we were only going for a year, you see. And then oh. uh, when my parents, I think they knew we weren't going for a year because my mum said she wasn't going to have another child mm-hmm. unless... Um, they moved into a different country and she was already pregnant when we were on our way. So I think they knew that, but they kind of like, they kind of knew it in their heart of hearts, but they, they weren't ready to say it or they didn't want to tell you. I think they didn't want to tell me in case I repeated anything to anyone. Oh, right. In case someone asked me somewhere at the border or something and, Mm. you know, I was going to say something because I was seven at the time. So, Mm so I think that was the kind of the pretense that they they all yeah. knew. And then we didn't go back to the country to Poland for seven years because they wanted to get citizenship, so they couldn't leave oh, the country. Okay. So then, you know, after a while, obviously the kind of missing my family and everything really kicked sure. in because, mm-hmm. yeah, I felt like my cousins were like my brothers and sisters, and mm. um. Maybe it's a little bit different now. Maybe the families aren't as close as they used to be. But as a child, I felt very close to everyone and Mm. everyone was looking after me because my parents were both working. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was difficult not to have that. Mm. Yeah, mine is. My my one brother lives um, two houses away from me. His son eats dinner with us three to four times a week. Um, Yeah, and my older brother, his kids and my older kids are best, best friends. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, they spent the night, you know, Saturday. So I can really understand that. And that was before FaceTime and all those other things. Exactly. There was yeah. just sort of letters. So I'd just write letters to my grandmas. Mm. And mm. 
sometimes my babcha yuta didn't write very well but now and again she would sort of scribble something together mm, <laughs> but, yeah but babcha halinka was a yes she loved writing and reading mm. letters and things and i've still got some of those so was writing polska sort of your your first or your greatest act of rediscovering your home or has that been a longer process um i think coming back it um Oh, it was wonderful when we came back. And then we spent, mm. started spending all our uh, summer holidays in Poland and we'd oh, go back okay. usually more than once a year. So, wow. it, so it was like, uh, mm, mm. I hadn't forgotten anything. It was just a kind of uh, mm, remembering mm-hmm. everything. And, and deepening, it, and deepening that relationship. Deepening, exactly. Mm. But then I would find there was sort of a... Um, a, a very diff, um, a different point of view when I would come back to England and mm. you know people was sort of you know I don't know had a very bad opinion of Polish food for a very long time mm-hmm. and there was kind of everything that I knew and then there was this public opinion which kind of um, didn't really add up so that's yeah. why I started yeah. writing my book because I needed I felt the need to kind of show mm. The beauty of that country, and yeah, you know, obviously there isn't just beauty. There's two sides of everything, but I felt like it was very one-sided mm. the opinion, and and I yeah. wanted, you know, I think I guess people had only seen things like milk bars or something if they went mm. over. They hadn't been if you haven't been to someone's home, then you wouldn't mm. see anything really. Mm. And isn't that interesting? Well, yeah, you you talk about that one defining moment. I think it was at a wedding right? Where someone mm-hmm. said something very dismissive. Yes. I think it was just, um, just someone, you know, we were just talking about food because we didn't know one another. And, uh, this girl said something along the lines of, well, Polish food is just dumplings, isn't it? You know, as if mm. like, ah, oh, you can't, you can't have an opinion about food. Mm. And, oh, um, so dismissive. It, yeah. Just the way she said it. <laughs> yes. And that, and that, that's it. Like the next morning you started writing this book, right? <laughs> It was the it was it was the kind of the moment where I was like I have to do something about this because it's right. just like you know poetry people love food so much and you have kind of like people who are laborers you know mm. who you know, they don't just eat crisps and chips or something you know they actually cook at home and well yes this is so interesting to me because when we talk about um, food, you know, cuisine and traveling and food, we're really talking about the restaurants you can go to. Right. But, and you're saying, if you need, if you want to experience good Polish food, you need to go to someone's home. That's where the good food is. That's where the love and the care is. And I find that so interesting. Absolutely. I think, um, it's definitely one of those home, Mm. uh, cooked cultures. It has been for a very long time but now they're catching up very very quickly and I think they have caught up already actually because Mm. the restaurants in Poland are amazing Um, however I do find that this very uh, quick turnaround often you go back and some restaurant is closed Um, so I guess still finding a way in terms of making it into a business because um, I guess people don't eat I just don't have that habit of eating out loads like they yeah. do in some countries. Yeah, I think that's so wonderful. And I think that's part of what, you know, you capture is the, um, I think that's why there's so much nostalgia 
um, mm-hmm. associated with the food because it's not, it's not just going out. Although like you're saying, I, I, I hear you, um, that you can do that. It's that everything was so closely associated with family and friends and these, um, these, these kind of happy moments, um, that you cherish. Yes, absolutely. And also, you know, I mean, there are also many different sides to it. You know, I think everyone in Poland has an opinion about food. Everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Also, there's a lot of criticism for my book as well, because really have an opinion. Absolutely. And actually, even though I feel like it's quite traditional book and that's how it's seen in the UK and Poland, it was um, sort of said to be quite revolutionary, you know, like quite controversial. (laughs) Why? Why did they receive it that way? Um, just because, you know, I would sometimes swap certain ingredients for something that was accessible around the world and, or do my own take on something because I didn't want it to be just those kind of my grandma's recipes. Of course, it's full of them, but there are other things as well going on in Polish cuisine. And I wanted it to have that kind of, um, uh, modern aspect to it as well, just what's happening now and people just being a little bit creative and it having life not just being that kind of oh it's always been like this and right (laughs) right right to have that but I think there also has to be life and energy and a creativity which there is in Polish cuisine but maybe not everywhere maybe it's more in the towns I think Mm. you know in the um you know obviously people have their own um family recipes and then anyone that has a different recipe it's not going to be considered right right it's not it's not authentic to their family right and as you talk about the breadth of food um in polish cooking i don't think we have time to talk about this but i i do want to (laughs) tell listeners one reason they would really enjoy polska is because you talked about the geographical placement of poland um, the legends of how it was started, and especially the food influences on it. And I, again, I, I mean, I, I was so ignorant. I didn't know it wasn't part of the USSR. So we can start with that. But this idea of the number of cuisines that um, had an influence on Polish cuisine was fascinating to me and it was beautifully told. So like I said, we don't have unfortunately time to talk about it, but I really think that's one reason listeners really enjoy Polska. Um, but what oh, I do want to ask, yes, yes, yes. Thank um, you mentioning that. Yeah. I think it's, it's important to sort of see that. And then I think, I guess it's also, um, you know, when we talk about authenticity, what's mm. Polish food, it's a very difficult question mm. to ask because there was so much flow between the different cultures. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, even from the Middle East, and I was Mm -hmm. like, let me get a map out. (laughs) But it makes sense. So um, Mm -hmm. now this one thing that was totally novel to me, and um, interestingly, since I've read your book, you know, I read Anna's about the Soviet cookbook, and Mm -hmm. um, this is not going to be novel to everyone listening, but I had never heard of this. It's not even an ingredient. I don't know what it is. It's, it's, I think you pronounce it Kazas. It's K-A-S-Z-A-S. It's like a grain. Oh, Kasha, Kasha. Kasha, Kasha. Okay. And grandmothers would wrap it up and put it in bed. I I know nothing about this. So start from the very beginning. What is this? 
how do you cook it? What's, why is it going to people's beds? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Kasha Grichana. Um, and you have a is, whole chapter on it. Oh, it's a, well, it's part of the kind of kasha and vegetables. So kasha um, is, it just means grains, basically. Oh, kasha any just grain. in itself. It can oh, be anywhere. Okay. But the reason it's why it's confusing is because now the word kasha is spelt in a Western way. So K A S-H-A, oh. um, is now sort of been used to describe toasted buckwheat groats. Toasted buckwheat groats. Or okay. buckwheat groats, yeah, mm-hmm. which is a very popular grain um, in Poland and the Baltic states. Um, so it features highly, actually in my second book, Amber and Rye as well, because mm. it's really one of those tastes. Um, and so it's sort of, East, I would say it's more common in sort of northern eastern Europe, but yeah, Poland and the and the Baltic states basically. And um, my grandma used to make it um, basically needs time to steam, but the way she would do it was uh, she'd cook it, and when the water evaporated, she would wrap it up in towels, the whole the whole pan with the lid on, mm. and she'd always stick it in my granddad's bed um, <laughs> under the duvet. <laughs> And what does this do? This just allows it to fluff up slowly with the steam. It's kind of steaming it, but it's doing it. You would just hold it there for at least an hour and uh, it kind of just flaps up and all the grains separate. And it's just the best way of doing this, uh, making this toasted buckwheat grows. When I mentioned it on Instagram, actually, um, other people say that their grandmas did something similar. So I think- yeah. Yeah. This was an Anna Soviet cookbook. I, really? I was it? Well, <laughs> yes, yes. This was brand new to me. So, um, again, like just to reveal more of my ignorance, the groat, is that the kind of, um, round part at the top? This is like almost like a bud. It swells. Yes. It's the, it's the, it's the, the cash is always kind of like, um, uh, the round bits, but there's definitely there's different types. So some kasha, like kasha manna, for example, that's fine semolina. So that's basically like oh. just a bit more, like a bit bigger than a flower. And but this one is, um, oh gosh, it's difficult to describe the size, but it's like a little, it's like a little bud, yeah. And then uh, it's especially important. I mean, you can just let it steam covered if you're going to. Um, depends on what you want to do with it, but if you want to make like a sort of sort of Ottolenghi style salad out of it, I would call, which were quite popular, for example, in the Baltic states, um, which I have in amber and rye, then you really want those grains to be kind of separated. I mean, I mean, you kind of always do really, it just tastes better if you, the longer you steam it. So even if you're not going to stick it under the duvet in bed, but just wrap the whole thing up in a towel yeah, and yeah. put it under some pillows just for 20 minutes or so. And you can really tell the difference. This is so interesting to me. Well, it's just an amazing visual. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like a baby. It felt like a baby because there was all these towels around it. And then there was a duvet around it Mm. um, Mm. and she would carry it like a baby. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. What, um, and then you can do lots of things with it once it's steamed. Yes. So often you'd have it with like, um, you could have it with just um, a sort of um, meat in a sauce or something Mm -hmm. like that. 
um, like I mentioned, the kind of uh, modern way of doing it is like, you know, you can make it have it with like um, some kind of like salad. So okay. it, it works really well with a lot of East European flavors. Mm. Sometimes you could just have it with some soured cream and some dill. I mean, it's delicious. Wow. You make it properly in itself. It's got such a strong, nutty, delicious mm. flavor that, mm. um, yeah, you can. Um, mm. I think once you try it, you'll you'll. Uh, there's nothing comparable really to that taste. So yes, I would love to. And you know, of course, there's such a push towards whole grains, and this is literally the whole grain that you're eating, right? <laughs> it must be incredibly healthy. I think it is. Yes, I mean, um, they say it has a lot of kind of vitamins and minerals and things mm. like that. I'm, I'm just wondering whether the roasting process would remove anything. I, I, I'm mm. not really sure about that, but well. The roasted is a, it tastes completely different roasted to the other stuff. It's the, the dark brown one you want. Ah, I see. I see. Okay. I see. Um, so tell me a little bit about just, just this one little story because it is springtime. Um, yeah. And you had this beautiful section on seasons. I think that was my favorite section. And you were talking about all the different traditions with each season. And so can you tell us a little bit about the springtime traditions in Poland? Uh, yes. So um, I, I think actually both in Poland and in the Baltic states, because, you know, the winters would sort of just go on and on and nothing would grow. Uh, when the first vegetables came out in spring, it's a real sort of sense of celebration. Mm. So in Poland, there's just like a little kind of um, thing that not everyone does, but some <laughs> families do. It's like a little game. You basically, when you're eating the first vegetables of the year, they're called novaliki. Mm. So they've got their own name, the, the first vegetables of the year. Oh. You, pull, you pull the ear of the person that you're eating them with. And <laughs> you're supposed to be the first one to do it, basically. So it's quite it's a, quite a funny little thing that mm. families do and just, you know, just makes them laugh. Yeah. Um, yeah but I think in um, they say like I think the white guide in, in Estonia says one of the best times to year uh, to visit Estonia is when the first vegetables come because the restaurants really celebrate that. So yeah. it's that kind of, um, of course, now you can get everything year round. Well, so it's not quite as seasonal anymore, but there's right. still, it is still quite seasonal. A lot of people um, shop at these kind of markets that are um, in all the kind of little towns and things like that. And people, mm. you know, local farmers come and sell their things and it's cheap and it's plentiful. Mm. And um, a lot of people do still do their shopping like that. And of course that has to be very seasonal. Right. Yeah. I think I just loved it. It's just so celebratory. Like we all feel amazing when the cherry blossoms come out and the daffodils come up and you see the buds on the trees. And, but if on top of that, um, you hadn't had access, you know, you had been eating maybe preserved or pickled things and dried things all winter. And then you got this first fresh taste. You would feel like doing something like pulling on someone's ear or something. So um, connecting it with some physical act. And I really just connected with that. Um, and I thought it was such a, such a wonderful nostalgic moment that you shared. And um, yeah, you do that with all the seasons. I really enjoyed that section so much. Oh, thank you so much. That's yeah. really lovely to hear. Yeah. I think that, that that's definitely a big part of um, 
a big part of that part of the world is mm. is the seasons. So mm-hmm. I, I wanted to kind of describe it because then that sort of shows the uh, the progression through them mm. and through the food. It's yeah, I, I think it, isn't it. Yeah, I think it made me almost. Um, and again, this is. I do, I don't want to romanticize poverty right but mm. it made you it makes you kind of realize what we lose by having so much because mm-hmm. we don't know what it is to feel that excitement of a, a fresh tasting vegetable um yeah i mean it makes it makes you realize yeah. if we've lost a little something Yes, I mean it's um oh absolutely. I think I, I think that's very true. It's mm. it's more about kind of I guess globalization mm. and just kind of growing things in various different parts of the world. And I definitely wouldn't say, you know, it's all bad and you know No, no, I no. Will, you know, I will buy some blueberries sometimes in the winter. I try to st- stick to seasonal yeah. stuff, but we're so <laughs> used to we're so used to having everything year round that I will not be able to get through the winter without buying blueberries a few times you know yeah, it's silly yeah. but you know and even despite that I am trying to be seasonal but um because you do lose something you do lose our connection to the earth in a way yeah we are in small ways trying to get it back now I would say yes I think I think maybe that's maybe you've kind of nailed it in terms of what really appealed to me so much about that section and that story is um it just kind of made me feel connected um to the earth and uh even if maybe maybe it's this right like even if I can be grateful because I like I said I don't want to romanticize you know, deprivation or punish myself for having access to things, but maybe it does just encourage me to have that moment. Um, even if I am eating blueberries in the winter to have that moment of thinking about, I have blueberry bushes in my yard, you know, the beauty of those bushes, what it feels like to pluck them and that that's happening somewhere. Someone did that for me. Um, even if it happened in the winter, I think that section just reminded me to be a little grateful. Maybe that's the way I guess I'm saying to find that balance between, um, being, being more grateful for what we have just by visualizing it did come from the land and it is really that miraculous that you feel like reaching out and grabbing somebody's (laughs) ear and saying, isn't this amazing? (laughs) we're here again it's spring yes yeah yeah yes exactly have little ways to celebrate that isn't it and Mm. no I haven't done the ear pulling thing for a while because yeah it doesn't it doesn't apply if you're eating everything year round really right 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 um, yeah and at the same time I've got my little um sunny spot in my garden and it's tiny and I've I've created a little edible Mm. garden Mm -hmm. and I can't provide all the food that we eat from that, mm. but at least I can show the girls how it grows, yeah. what happens during each season. Mm. And I'm learning myself as well, you know? Yeah. Who knew, I mean, in England, things do grow through the winter, actually. So, <laughs> yes, with greenhouses and things like that. Or even just outside, you mean things like kale, like hearty vegetables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Things yeah. like that don't don't grow in Poland in the winter, but yeah. things do. So it's it's a different uh, climate. And... Mm, mm, that's true as well. Yeah. Well, you've given me a lot of your time, so I don't want to hold you for too much more. I'm hoping we can talk about t- two more things. <laughs> yeah. And um, one is I really do want to 
cover this idea of, um, you said breakfast was so important because there's such a cultural emphasis on fasting. And that always fascinates me. I'm having someone come on next week to talk about Ramadan and Yed. And uh, again, I just think about what we lose um, in our our societies where we have so much, we lose this connection to the earth. We lose a lot of gratitude. Um, we lose these celebratory moments. And I'm curious um, why there was a cultural emphasis on fasting and what that brought to the culture um, in terms of those, in terms of those things. Right. Yeah. Historically fasting was very important in Poland. Mm. Um, and by fasting, actually it, often meant eating fish rather than meat (laughs) yeah that's just true in many places yes actually even on christmas eve our most important christmas meal we are theoretically fasting we don't eat meat Um, so it doesn't mean we're not actually um i mean you don't eat for the whole day until Mm. you actually sit down to that meal and then everything obviously takes a lot better as well yes Um, but i guess because poland's a catholic country that's why it was um quite important so since you know um since it became uh catholic it was always uh times of feasting times of fasting it's just that kind of catholic calendar um i guess a lot of people still do that there's a lot of um um people that you know do go to church and that kind of thing but there there are people that just do it rhythmically Mm -hmm. kind of um, and a sort of just natural way, not because of the church or anything like that, but just because I guess um, it just, you know, for example, on Christmas Eve, um, I might not eat all day just because I like that, that rhythm. It makes it more special when you do. Yeah. 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 I think, um, I think I was having a hard time articulating or even understanding why I enjoyed your book so much. And as we talk about fasting and these seasonal things, I think it's because the, um, the simplicity of these celebrations, um, really everything about um, the care that went into these meals, whether it was like gathering things, you know, taking a week or more to gather things at Christmas and having community involvement in that. And then the seasonal approach or um, even this, this emphasis on fasting and the importance of it. And then coming back to the table, I think it all reminded me to be a little more grateful, to be certainly more mindful about mm-hmm. what we have. And I think that I'm very drawn to a food culture that has all of these ways um, to remind us to be mindful. You know, I think that's yes. what I really found in your book. And it made me feel connected to the earth. It made me feel grateful, I think, reading about these traditions and yes. routines. Yeah. That's wonderful to hear. And um, and I think, yeah, some of them are just sort of quite old-fashioned traditions. I'm I'm but now they had a purpose. A, exactly. They had a purpose. And I'm doing a PhD now about Polish home cooking mm. at the School of Slavonic and East, um, East European Studies mm. at UCL. And um and I guess it's I haven't found out exactly. I'm reading about the new sort of trends and ways of eating and things like that. I'm not sure how much of this kind of fasting rhythm remains 
Hmm. now in people's um, food ways and the way they eat. But um, it's something I'm interested in looking into a little bit more, actually, because I I suspect that some of it has remained despite um, all the changes and, you know, sort of transnational nature of our lives now. Well, Right. Maybe not during the pandemic, but just in general. And I think just the fact that there's Instagram and the way that, that we are all connected online, then mm-hmm. even during the pandemic, we are still in this sort of transnational space. In oh, a way. very much so. And I think definitely in the food community. I mean, mm-hmm, I really exactly. feel that in the food community. Uh, I really do. Yeah. And I think, I do think there's, you know, I think about the idea of a, of a Sabbath, which is a very religious idea apart from, I mean, Certainly, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, all they, their Sabbaths are not on the same day, but they all have this idea. And then, you know, you kind of move away from it. And then as a society, you realize we're exhausted and we're burnt out. And there's um, there's this sense of wholeness when you return to it. Um, you feel like, oh, it was supposed to be here all along you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's um, with these so many things that you wrote about in terms of the food, there's the sense of like, this is how it, this is how it's supposed to be. And I don't, I don't need to give up what I have, but I need to understand you, when you take, when you take time to get hungry, you, Mm -hmm. you enjoy feeling full, (laughs) you know? Um, Exactly. I think what I've learned with age is that certain constrictions Mm. are actually very beneficial Mm. to, um, to our health and to our just general sense of well-being. Mm. You know, I don't, for example, I don't eat sugar during the week. I try not Mm. to sometimes. Okay. (laughs) That's your own form of fasting. Yeah. Exactly. I give myself these little kind of constrictions because then when I do eat it, I enjoy it more. Yeah, this is so interesting. Have a few extra days of eating it. I can feel my body feels different. So, Mm. you know, there's just various rhythms. And I guess it's about finding your own rhythm Mm -hmm. in a world where you can just have anything all the time, but you don't really want everything all the time. No, (laughs) you just, you just feel, um, everything feels so droning, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. And I think that's the thing. When, yes. Mm. Yes. When spring comes and interrupts the drudgery of, <laughs> you know, what you've been eating every night, it, there's an excitement there that's so um, palpable, you know, yeah. or if, yeah, if you fast all Christmas Eve, then how much more do you celebrate Christmas day and appreciate the effort that everyone mm. put into gathering these ingredients you know, near and wide. And yeah, I I think, I think your book just made that feel very close. Uh, It made me yearn for it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay. Yeah, of course. So one last thing, and I know this has been such a weird time. So it's like, oh my gosh, we're going on like almost two hours of your time at this point with it all broken up. Um, Tell me about this omelet recipe, because for me here in the US, omelet means like this massive thing, like eggy thing filled with mushrooms and peppers and probably yeah. a couple of meats and cheese. And it's um it's very hearty and it's very eggy. And this is not at all <laughs> what you were describing. So what am I going for um, so this with this cool, recipe? This right? omelet and berries. I the closest I could get reading it was like a crepe. 
Yeah, I mean, it the actual omelette itself isn't taste doesn't taste like a crepe, but mm. it's um, it, I guess the theory behind it is kind of similar. Mm. Um, it's called omelette biskoptove, which means like a sponge cake omelette. So, oh, yeah. So I guess there's like a sponginess that you're going for. Interesting. Okay. It's very fluffy. So you don't want to like overcook it and you don't want it to like the egg whites or to just sort of like flop down. You want oh. to kind of keep that fluffiness um, in there. Sorry, I did a really unpleasant sound effect there. No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't find it to be that way. It was quite descriptive because that's what my egg whites usually do. <laughs> Sorry, I think that's probably not what you want on a food podcast. I could take it. Um, so you want fluffiness, and and then you have the sweetness and the tartness of the berries, and then you know, and then you want the kind of like the freshness of the of the cream. And this is something, this is like a real kind of family, well loved family recipe that Mm. my mum would always make for me and would always be a treat whenever she makes it. I mean, you cannot be in a bad mood when you're eating this for breakfast. (laughs) Cream, berries, and and a sponge cake? No, (laughs) you cannot possibly be. Um, And so (laughs) you're, you're going for a sponge cake texture flavor as well like not not eggy i need to get eggy out of my mind i need to stop associating omelet with egg eggy correct you know if you think yeah i mean if you think of like when you're making meringue and you have those yeah. fluffy sweet egg whites i mean yeah. for me that kind of egginess is okay. very welcome so yes <laughs> yes yes <laughs> um Got so it. yeah, you're thinking of kind of, but then I guess because it's fried in butter, then you have also that buttery kind mm. of feel to it as well. Mm. And um, yeah, and it would just, it's always like a weekend breakfast, you know, because yeah. you don't have time to make things like that, that on a, maybe on a no. week day, but no, um, no, and like, yeah. <laughs> no, and eating that every day would not fall into our fasting no. <laughs> mindset. <laughs> Oh, well, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Um, I really do appreciate your time. I know that it's been, I feel like this whole thing has been very tricky um, from beginning to end. So I hope you're happy with the outcome. Please tell everyone where to find Polska, which is what we've really focused on here. Also Amber and Rye, and also about your new cookbook coming out. Thank you so much. Yeah. So Polska, my first cookbook, you can buy uh, both Polska and Amber and Rye from any any bookshop, really. Of course, you can get it on Amazon or I'm not really sure what the big outlets are in America, but I, you can get it. Um, you can get both Polska and Amber and Rye um, most places in America. because Yes. Going around. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my next cookbook is coming out in summer and it's called pierogi Mm. and it is focused on dumplings so (laughs) oh yeah so I had a whole chapter on dumplings in yes yes uh, actually there's a lot more (laughs) this is amazing to me (laughs) yeah I it's one thing we didn't get to today but I I'm excited for that cookbook and um it's funny it's like you kind of exorcised the exactly. the demon of yeah. what that girl said to you and now that she said it you can celebrate dumplings <laughs> yeah. I actually mentioned her in the first paragraph because I've come full circle yeah and celebrating the whole world of Polish dumplings yes which is incredible 
incredible and another reason yeah. for people to buy your book, the variety um, and the beauty of the dumplings was amazing. Um, that chapter was, was wonderful. So, all right, Zuza, this is, this has been such a pleasure for me. Everyone of course can find all of your information in the show notes. And um, I hope we'll have an opportunity to talk soon. Becky, thank you so much. I just want to say I love your podcast. I love your style of interviewing. It's really lovely. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to this. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, I feel it was a little off today, but hopefully <laughs> it was okay. <laughs> I know we had a lot of interruptions, but um, yeah, it was so lovely talking to you. So yeah. thank you. My, my absolute pleasure. We will talk soon. All right, Zuza, thank you. Have a great, thank great, you. great evening. Take care, Becky. Take care. Thank you. Bye. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks again so much for listening here to the end. I do really hope and ask that you would take a minute to rate or review the podcast. It's super easy to do that from the show notes, even if you're not sure how to do it in your player. If you just click the link um, under rate, rate this podcast there in the show notes, there's a handy little app that'll take care of all the behind the scenes work for you and just tell you where to type up your review and leave your five stars. Um, I would also love it if you would forward this episode to a friend or family member. Both of those things mean so much to me um, personally. As you know, this podcast is really a labor of love. And it's you guys that I depend on to grow it and to um, enable me to just continue to share these stories um, for a long time in the future, I hope, because I love it. And I love connecting with you guys. Always feel free to reach out, Becky at thestoriedrecipe.com. You can subscribe to the newsletter to hear from me every Friday and get links to all these amazing recipes that our guests share. In the meantime, I hope you all have a really great week, my friends.